How about we begin with prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember us, Lord, when you come into your kingdom and teach us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to thank uh, Father uh, Birdsall to uh, invite me to be here with you all. I love the opportunity to give a mission and to be able to talk about this particular topic, prayer. Um, first, I want to start off just in the theme of the season, Advent. That word Advent means parousia, um, or coming, or presence. That Christ is coming, and he is present. So I want to read something to you, because I've titled this mission, um, Mental Prayer, the Advent, the Coming of Grace. This is something that myself and Father read in the Office of Readings this morning in the Liturgy of the Hours from St. Charles Borromeo on the season of Advent. Beloved, now is the acceptable time spoken of by the Spirit, the day of salvation, peace and reconciliation, the great season of Advent. This is the time eagerly awaited by the patriarchs and prophets, the time that Holy Simeon rejoiced at last to see. This is the season that the church has always celebrated with special solemnity. We too should always observe it with faith and love, offering praise and thanksgiving to the Father for the mercy and love he has shown us in this mystery. In his infinite love for us, though we were sinners, he sent his only Son to free us from the tyranny of Satan, to summon us to heaven, to welcome us into its innermost recesses, to show us truth itself, to train us in right conduct, to plant within us the seeds of virtue, and enrich us with the treasures of his grace, and to make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. The church each year recalls this mystery. She urges us to renew the memory of the great love God has shown us. This holy season teaches us that Christ's coming was not only for the benefit of his contemporaries, his power still has to be communicated to us all. We share his power if through holy faith and the sacraments we willingly accept the grace Christ earned for us and live by that grace and in obedience to Christ. The church asks us to understand that Christ, who came once in the flesh, is prepared to come again. When we remove all obstacles to his presence, he will come at any hour and moment to dwell spiritually in our hearts, bringing him with the riches of his grace. So if you've paid attention to the liturgy and the prayers within it very closely, you've noticed that Advent is not a preparation for Christmas, not specifically. It's first a preparation for Christ to come at the end of time. And in that preparation of the end of time, as we just heard Charles Borromeo say, that Advent is not just for those who live with Christ while he walked but it's for us when Christ comes in the life of grace. And so, why choose mental prayer to talk about this coming of grace? We know grace is God's life communicated to us, his very life within us. So why mental prayer? Why is that necessary? Because one of the greatest, I guess you call spokespersons, or spiritual theologians in the history of the church, St. Teresa of Avila, has a very bold and scary claim. She says, it is impossible to grow in virtue without mental prayer. Again, I don't want to water the meaning of that phrase down. It is impossible to grow in virtue without mental prayer. And so, first, 
not watering it down, but to understand it rightly, how do we understand mental prayer? Teresa is then going to go on to say, mental prayer is simply an understanding of who, what I am saying and who I am speaking with. What I am saying and whom I am speaking with. That sounds very simple. That sounds like something that we should be very accustomed to. Because, of course, I would understand what I'm saying and with who I'm speaking. But, as we all know, whenever we're learning anything, the first thing that has to be established is memorization. Whenever you're teaching a kid how to read, you have to teach them the alphabet just to memorize the letters there. And so we've done the same thing in our own Catholic upbringing. When you raise your kids, and whenever we raise as kids, what was the first thing that we learned? The Hail Mary, the Our Father, and the Glory Be. Did we learn what it meant? What it meant? Not necessarily. And even if we learned what it meant, does it mean that every time we pray it, we acknowledge with whom we are speaking and what we are saying? Not necessarily either. And so that is what we mean by mental prayer. It's this full integration that I know what I'm saying and with whom I am speaking so that it's said in sincerity and so that in sincerity I'm united to God and his will. Now that word virtue, it's a loaded word in the sense that she's, Teresa is saying, we can't grow in virtue without mental prayer. Well, there's a question. What about all these pagan philosophers? What about Aristotle? What about Socrates? What about the great men of old who never prayed? Were they not virtuous? And the answer is yes, but not in Christian virtue. And let me explain. What does virtue mean? If we break apart that word, vir in the Latin. It literally literally means manliness. Now, this doesn't this is not like a sexist term. It doesn't mean like, all right, women, you gotta start growing mustaches. You know, this is about manliness. You know, that's not what virtue is. What they mean by that is not this gendered sense, but in the broader sense, that we are trying to actualize everything that is human within us. We're trying to bring that all into fruition. And so, in the natural world, we know that a thing is perfect whenever it does what it's supposed to do. So, if a pit bull fights, we would say, like, that is a good and actualized pit bull. If an, if an oak tree drops acorns and casts shade, then it is a good and right, it's a good oak tree. And so, what is the specific difference of man over the rest of creation? It's that man knows. Man is able to abstract. You know, your dog isn't writing poetry, I hope. You know, or like monkeys, I hope, aren't uh, talking about sunsets with one another. But for man, the thing that will exalt him is to know. And to know then what? To know absolute truth. Not just what's in front of us in the imaginative world, in the sensory world, but to know beyond what cannot be seen, what is absolute truth. Now, again, this is a loaded question. We're talking about virtue because whenever God becomes man, in the person of Jesus Christ, virtue has a whole nother flavor. It's not simply that man is supposed to know, as the philosophers Aristotle and Plato would have known, but it's that man is supposed to become like God. If virtue is manliness and Christ becomes man, and if we follow Christ, then it means that we follow Christ, the man who is God. And so that as St. Irenaeus says, that God becomes man so that man can become God. And so for us, let's break down that phrase again. Without mental prayer, we cannot become virtuous, or without understanding, without mental prayer, we cannot become like God. It's starting to get to make more and more sense now. We cannot become like God. Now we have to ask that next question. Well, how do I become like anything? How do I become like anything? There's this fundamental law in the universe. 
a fundamental law, that what I love is what I become like. So for instance, whether it's good or not, um, if I am upset that two of my fantasy players got hurt this weekend uh, on fantasy football, and like, and I love the fact that I could win like my $50 pot here, then I am going to suffer with them in their sufferings. I've become, I've identified with them. That is what love does. It identifies with the other. When I love another person, I make them another self. I extend myself onto them so that their welfare becomes mine. Now here's the problem. Is that we all love, but with sin, we tend to despair of our loving our creator, and so we tend to love lesser things. And so this is why in the Old Testament, and even in the New, when you see Jesus talking about uh, to the Pharisees why they won't understand the parables, because they have ears, but they cannot hear, they have eyes, but they cannot see, they will become like their idols. Like in the Old Testament, where they craft idols, they make them in their own image, but the thing is that they become like their idols. They become deaf and they become mute. So they cannot hear the word of God. They cannot speak the word of God. We become like what we love. We identify with what we love. And so with that stage set, I want to set now the conversation of how do we achieve mental prayer? How do we pray? Because we cannot have within our mind this notion. If prayer is about love that my prayer life is really good but I'm still persevering in a state of mortal sin we have to kill if that idea is in our mind then I want to kill that sacred cow we cannot have that idea in our mind that my prayer life is really good but I'm still in a lot of sin because what this tells me is that I'm loving lesser things and what the prayer life is supposed to be is loving God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. It's all very simple. It's the highest commandment. And so if I'm in sin, then I'm not in a good prayer life. And perhaps I'm deluding myself, or as Johnny Cash once said, I just have my own personal Jesus, you know, that I'm making up in my own image and likeness rather than looking at him. And so, if you could, uh, if if you're taking notes, or if you just want to structure this talk in your mind about approaching mental prayer, I want to talk about it in four categories given by the spiritual author Adolf Tankeret. That we have remote preparation, proximate preparation, immediate preparation, and then the act of prayer. Remote, proximate, immediate, and then the act of prayer itself. So remote preparation. Adolf Tankeray says this simply. Remote preparation is the mortification, which just means the putting to death, or making death. The putting to death of my senses and my passions. Now, that sounds a little bit loaded. It doesn't mean like, okay, well, like I can't, I can't have any senses and I can't feel anything. But this putting to death is this right prioritization. So in the Christian life, think about it this way. If I put it to death for a time, maybe it'll resurrect rightly. It'll resurrect in the right order. And so this putting to death of my senses and passions. I want to break down that word senses first because it's loaded for Adolf Tanqueray. It doesn't just mean that I'm not looking where I'm not supposed to look and I'm not smelling things I'm not supposed to smell or touching things I'm not supposed to touch. It's much below that. Those are external senses. And within the tradition of the church, there's a rich history and the necessity of fasting. So we hear Jesus say, when you fast, do not be gloomy like those hypocrites. He doesn't say if you fast. He assumes that we're fasting. And the reason is because we have to go from those lower loves to the highest love, God himself, if we are to become like God. And so regular fasting should be part of our daily experience. 
Of course, there are health extenuating circumstances, and those are noted. But the principle of fasting, that I'm going above created things to love the creator of those things. So that would be called external mortification. And there's a lot more that comes with that, and I'll paint the picture more. We get to the internal senses. And the internal senses for Tancred and many of the other spiritual writers are our imagination and our memory. Our imagination and our memory. These things need to be put to death and then rightly ordered, resurrected in the spiritual life. So, the imagination. Why? Um, in St. Ignatius' writings of Loyola, he's going to say something akin to the unmortified imagination is like the mad woman running around in the house. Just the idea of, like, I'm going all over the place. So think about this. I'm on a college campus, at least for the next three days. Um, so this is more prevalent amongst them. In fact, we just had a, a talk with our students and on social media and the um, speaker asked them to uh, like raise their hand basically if you have the longest amount of screen time on your phone. Someone said 13 hours, I almost threw up. But um, it's much more prevalent um, with the younger, but it's still, I mean, Adolf Tegra is talking about this and this thing, I mean, he's talking about in the early 20th century, you know, like the smartphone does not be, need to be invented for this to be a problem. But the problem with the imagination is consider every time that you have maybe gone to take a holy hour or gone to pray or sit in church. And immediately your mind is flooded with a million different thoughts. You can't keep your mind on God himself. This is what we're talking about, the mortification of the imagination. And so... The reality is, is that when I love created things and why external mortification and internal mortification have to be tied, when I love created things, I think about them. You know, if I am focused on the Saints game all day and then I'm watching that and then I try to go to pray later, I'm going to wonder why Derek Carr lost the game again for the Saints. You know, I'm not going to be able to put my mind on God. It's, it won't work very well. And so there has to, there's this necessary tie between my external actions and my internal ones. And this is, if you get anything from this section on the remote preparation, basically the best thing that you can do to pray is live a good moral life. That's the best thing you can do to pray. Live a good moral life. And so what the imagination should be doing is think about it this way. The imagination for us as Americans, 21st century, is probably much more like a Buffalo Wild Wings than it is like a cathedral. <laughs> think about it in that manner. That whenever I enter into a beautifully structured cathedral or basilica, the architecture of that building is going to be that we have the Stations of the Cross along the sides, Maybe with that, there's lined the saints, you know. And then as we get closer and closer to the sanctuary, there is the Blessed Virgin Mary and Joseph on either side. And then you have Christ in the middle. And then ultimately, you have Christ in the middle hidden in the tabernacle. And this is the idea, that images propose to me a window in the created things of the world to see the uncreated, to see God himself. And so the most practical way that we can purify our imagination is to propose to our imagination the highlight reels of the gospel, which is also simply known as the rosary. That if I am meditating and proposing the images that are presented to me in the mysteries of the rosary devoutly, then that's going to purify my imagination to where whenever I go to pray, I'm not just tormented by like, okay, these are all the things that I think about. And God can't see all the things that I'm really thinking about. you know. But if I'm with Mary as a mediatrix to see Christ, then gently more and more I am creating a space to see God and then to be with him and to let those lower things down. 
So it's not just simply that I have to spend less time on the screen than I do praying, which is something we probably should be doing. Between prayer and spiritual reading, Bible study, whatever it might be, we should probably spend more time doing that than we do needlessly recreating or what we might call recreating. That I can uh, aim my love and my whole being towards God himself through that purification of the imagination. After that, the memory. What is the memory supposed to do? What is the role of memory? The memory is so important in our spiritual tradition. Consider that at Sunday Mass, the apex of the liturgy is when Father takes bread and says, do this in memory of me. The memory presents things to the mind. It makes things present. So in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the actual memory literally makes the thing present. But for us, the memory makes things present. It doesn't even have to be past things. I'll get to that because the thing about the fallen memory, the sinful memory, is that imagine ourselves on a string that's horizontal. The fallen memory is prone to remember past sins and our love for those past sins. And then with that presents the temptation in the future to fall into those sins again. But then the memory also can present to us past hurts, unforgiveness that we have towards others and brooding over injury. And then to remain bitter in the future. That's what the fallen memory can do. But what the redeemed memory looks more like is a vertical string between us and God, where we look at all things through the light of divine revelation. We look at all things through God. So that whenever someone hurts me, I don't look back and say, well, look at the pile of just crap that they have have done you know how dare i look forward you know to loving them again but i look towards christ on the cross and look at that offense through how he has been wounded that is more akin to what the redeemed memory looks like so the redeemed memory basically makes god present to us There's a line in Ecclesiastes that says, if you remember your last end, you shall not sin. If you remember your last end, you shall not sin. Basically, we keep our eyes on Christ crucified. That's what the redeemed memory looks like. And that, again, is going to be a great remote preparation to pray. Now, in regards to, remember, I mean, I'm kind of breaking all this down very slowly, but Tanqueray said, we mortify the senses and the passions. Mortify the senses and the passions. What about the passions? The passions are good, fundamentally. The passions allow us to embrace the uh, embrace the spiritual life. Em- embrace loving the Lord with joy whenever the intellect maybe is dark, whenever we don't understand. I mean, if you uh, were at Mass today, then you heard in that psalm, go forth rejoicing to the house of the Lord. It's like, we know the Lord is coming on Judgment Day. So what do we do about it? We go to the Lord rejoicing. We need the passions. There's a problem. The passions need to be purified because St. John of the Cross says that he does not have enough ink in the world to write about the harms of inordinate joys. He doesn't have enough ink in the world to write about the harms of misplaced joys so for instance if even if they're good things this is john of the cross's point and this is something that we all myself included need a conversion to uh reference fantasy football obsession this past week you know but um inordinate joys so what i'm saying is that if we treasure wealth in itself if we treasure health in itself, if we treasure success in itself. John would say this is an inordinate joy. 
that all things, if we're saying that God is all good, which, which we can agree upon, right? If God is all good, then all things have to be ordered towards him. All things do. And so the problem is that for us, it's not usually that bad things keep us from God. It's that good things keep us from God. Think about all the times that you have wanted to go to pray, but you had some other thing that you were doing that you said, oh, well, this is a good thing, you know, but it's, but it's good, you know. And that has kept us from the author of all good. And so those inordinate joys need to be brought into the umbrella of seeing it through the light of Christ. Why does this glorify God? Or can I use it to glorify God? And if it doesn't, then we need to be able to set it aside. As Jesus said to the rich man, do you wish to enter into life? Then sell all you have and come and follow me. Principally, sell all the things in your heart that you have if you wish to enter into life and come and follow me. So that is remote preparation. Simply put, live the good moral life and desire to see God above all things. And then we can run towards him in joy and let those things go. Now, proximate preparation. So, proximate preparation for prayer is this. I select what I'm going to pray with. Now, that sounds simple, but at least for me, within like the college sphere of things, see a lot of people that like to play the game of Bible roulette, you know? Like, I'll just, I'm just going to turn this thing, and wherever the hand goes, I'm going to treat the Bible like a Ouija board, you know? Which, don't treat the Bible like a Ouija board. In fact, you have a Ouija board, just throw it away. Don't throw your Bible away either. So, um, but just instead, the, the problem with that mentality is this. The, and C.S. Lewis writes about this in his awesome book, The Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read, is a real treat. Um, is that whenever we just simply choose the books that we want to pray with or the things that we want to pray with, we end up just choosing things that happen to like assimilate to our likes and our needs. And then, if we do that, are we really opening ourselves to God's life? Am I just asking God to fit into my life or am I trying to enter into his? And so, what there's a couple of practical ways that you can do this instead of doing the Bible roulette game where I'm just looking for something that strikes me. One, let the liturgy determine it for you. Pray with the gospel that's presented in the daily mass readings. Or two, and I prefer this, I prefer this because it. whenever I go to pray, I'm not thinking about what am I going to preach on, but I'm just being with God. Choose a book of the Bible and do a continuous reading of it. Not all books of the Bible are created equal for this purpose. Don't pick up the book of Leviticus and pray with it. You're going to be bored with priestly laws. But there are a lot of, like, the wisdom literature, for instance. So the Psalms, fantastic to do this. Because you're praying with prayers. And so you're learning the words that you should be speaking to God so that you can adapt your desires to them. Sirach. Sirach is a big book. And whenever, you know, like, I'm praying, I want to pray for a certain length. I don't want to pray for the whole chapter length. So I'm praying for maybe, well, they're called pericopes. You know, you, you get your Bible and you look at it and you see those little lines in between the chapter visions. And whenever you're at your next tea party and you use a $5 word to say that you've been praying with the pericope, you know. So um, that pericope. So I've been praying with the book of Sirach for the last like four or five months now because it's just taken me a long time to get through. But that continuous reading, what it does is it puts me through all the emotions. I could be challenged. I could be consoled, I could be bored, and I could have to dig deeper. And so I'm entering into God's word rather than him just assimilating it into mine. So I, I can give you uh, just a brief list right now. Obviously the Gospels, we should be praying with the Gospels, but Psalms, Sirach, Wisdom, Proverbs, um, some of the prophets such as Hosea, um, these, these are beautiful texts to pray with that we can then um, be assimilated to. So not only in, do we want to select and stick with the material, but Tanqueray says that 
we should actually, and I'm very bad about this. I, uh, I, I need to grow in this personally. But read it the night before. So he says, revolve it in our mind upon awakening. So if I read it the night before, and then when I wake up, and this is actually like so practical. How many times do people just spend maybe 20, 30 minutes, an hour scrolling before they go to sleep, and they're filling their mind with these images, rather than take three minutes or two minutes or even one minute just to read the text that you're going to pray with tomorrow and just have that in your mind. So that when you wake up, you're revolving it in your mind, and then you're exciting your heart with the corresponding sentiments. So that if you're praying with Psalm 23 tomorrow, the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I shall want. You're reading that. And then you're revolving that in your mind. When you wake up the next morning, hopefully you feel a little bit detached. The Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I shall want. I'm not pulled down by earthly things, but I want to love God who is the creator. So I revolve it in my mind upon waking up. He then goes on to say that our um, proximate preparation, we should approach the Lord with earnestness, confidence, and humility, desiring to give glory to God and to, and to improve our life. I just want to break down two words in that, earnestness and humility. So we need to be sincere in our prayer. The whole point of this prayer is that I am loving God. And in order to love, I have to love from a sincere spot. I have to love, I have to give my whole self, which means my whole self. And so we have to acknowledge what are the feelings that are associated with the gospel. And usually, like I'm bad about this because I'm, I'm a man, and men are really bad about this typically, is identifying what our feelings are in response to God's word. And feelings are a one-word thing. You know, like, if it's sad, it make me afraid. Does it make me happy? Does it make me confused? Acknowledging all that and relating it is important because this is where God is going to meet us because we have to love with our whole heart. And then, secondly, humility. Approaching the Lord with humility. What this means is pretty simple. Where does humility come from? Humility, because we're sinners, oftentimes comes from being humiliated. We can't really grow in humility if we're not humiliated. Why? Because we're stubborn, hard-headed, prideful sinners. And so any time that we have the gift of being humiliated, that is something that we bring to pray with. That is something that's related to God. So if we can be in that space to be humiliated, then we can relate that to God, who was humbled for our sake, even unto death, death on the cross. So with all of that, I want to then shift into immediate preparation. And this is very brief. That whenever I go to pray, this is I'm talking about the very time that I'm going to sit or kneel in the pew. I'm going to place myself in the presence of God, who is present everywhere, and especially in our heart, acknowledging ourselves unworthy and incapable of meditation and imploring the Holy Ghost to assist us. So one thing that I notice, I have, I have two remarks on this. Um, one, in the media preparation, posture matters. Posture matters. So... When I go, if I can, it's preferable to kneel the moment that I come to pray. Because if my prayer is to give myself and love over to God, then to be like in my lazy boy, just reclined out and say like, God, I want to give myself to you. And be like, honey, can you give me some sweet tea while you're at it? You know, like you can't, there are two contrary kind of movements here, you know? So... Um, we need to be able to place ourselves in a position of self-gift. And so to be able to start off prayer on our knees is incredibly important. Think about it this way. If kneeling is a posture of self-gift and sitting is a posture of receiving, so maybe of that actual meditation when we get to actual mental prayer. The second thing, that immediate preparation, placing ourselves in the presence of God. This is um, more 
overlooked than we might imagine. Um, Praying five times a day, the bravery, I can say probably more times than not, I'm not placing myself or taking a moment to truly place myself in the presence of God. That it's easily just to come in, God come to my sister, just come right into it, and with all of the other things that I'm thinking about, knowing sure and well that the moment that I finish this period of prayer, I'm going to pick up those other things. And that the graces that I could receive from this prayer are going to wash over me like water over a rock. So, knowing that we have to place ourselves in the presence of God, and I notice this more in, in college students um, than others, but instead of placing ourselves in the presence of God, oftentimes we can place just ourselves in the presence of my higher self, my higher imagined self. And what I mean by that is we go to pray, and the first thing we think about is, how can I be better? How can I do better? We just imagine who the person is that we want to be, and then we think about all the ways that we could be that. It's not placing ourselves in the presence of God. It's placing ourselves in front of the imagined better version of ourselves, which oftentimes simply, which is a fictitious person, by the way, which oftentimes elicits self-hatred and frustration because we haven't figured that out yet. Instead, we place ourselves in the presence of the merciful God. And so instead of placing ourselves just in front of our imagined higher self and then saying, well, I can't place myself in the presence of God until I'm that, but I haven't got there yet, and it's been 32 years, like, what am I supposed to do? So placing ourselves in the presence of God. So with that, now it's time to actually talk about prayer. Now that we've prepared, we've set the table. So mental prayer. Um, there are a lot of different angles we could take. I'll give you kind of two different methods. Um, first, just in a general sense, mental prayer. The first thing that we should do is when we go is that we make an act of, God, of worship rendering God religious homage due to him. So if you notice in that um, proximate preparation that we said that prayer was about giving glory to God and then improving our life. It was not about improving our life to the point where maybe after that we can give glory to God. And so the first thing that we do when we go to pray is just say, Lord, I love you, desire to love you more, desire to give glory to you. I just want to give glory to God. If he is all good, I want him to be all good for me. Second, after giving him glory, and again, not just wanting to be better ourselves, but giving him glory and to love and exist for him, then we make considerations. So take grace as we convince ourselves of the necessity of the virtue we wish to acquire and we earnestly ask for the grace to practice and determine to do so. So a consideration could look like this. Again, the most practical, if we don't have a Bible or whatever else, the most practical um, method of meditation is, is through the rosary. So walking through it, I'm praying with the second joyful mystery. And I present to my mind, I make the consideration of Mary going to visit Elizabeth. And when I'm thinking about Mary and her being pregnant, Elizabeth's pregnancy, I'm now thinking of all of the virtue that Mary is full of grace that's happening in that scene. That as Mary approaches Elizabeth, there must have been reciprocal joy. And she has within her womb the word of God, and that the word of God causes... Elizabeth's child to leap within her womb to spring forth to come almost to come alive and that Mary remains with her with the word of God with her in that space for the next several months and simply to assist in the ordinary no pun intended but that scene is pregnant with meaning it's pregnant with meaning And so I'm making that consideration 
But I'm not making it just in the abstract, like, what does that mean? What do the biblical commentaries say? And, you know, how can I share this in the next Bible study that I'm in? No, but I'm placing myself. It's like, okay, whenever I approach someone, there's this mutual sense of help and reciprocal joy. Or is there envy? Is there threat? Like, what, what is stirring up in my heart now? Whenever I'm in this space, do I want to elicit the best out of someone? Do I want God, do I want the Word of God within me, Christ, sanctified grace within me, to pull that out of someone else? And then do I want to help them in the ordinary just to remain with them? There's a lot of different angles you could take on that meditation. Obviously, when we're talking about the Word of God, we're talking about seeing the face of Christ, so there's an infinite amount of depth and truth there. But you see how in order to arrive there and have the discipline and the love to consider that space, it means like putting down the YouTube shorts, you know? I might be, I'm speaking to the wrong crowd. I'm, I'm still speaking to college students, sorry. But, um, but yeah, but, but putting down those things, right? Because this does not seem attractive whenever I'm filling my mind with the Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, imagination. But this becomes attractive the more and more that I mortify this. So, those considerations. And what those considerations should do, and you can think about it in this way too, if it's helpful for you, that this, I'm exercising the virtue of faith here, just visualizing. And then, as I'm there with Mary and Elizabeth, there's hope. I hope that I can have that solidarity with my neighbor. I hope that I can be with them. I hope that I can bring the best out. I hope that there can be tension relieved in just my familial relations. I hope for all that. And then I start to love the virtues that are being placed there. And another spiritual author is going to say that I love with affective love. I desire that for myself. I desire that harmony within my own family. I desire to bring God into uh, that that space. And then that affective love should spring into, and this is our next point, effective love. Okay, so how do I put it into effect? How do I do it? And so at this point in prayer, we earnestly ask for the grace to practice virtue, and we determine to do so. And this is important, and this is where a lot of people can get kind of stuck and think themselves, and why some like Christians can have a bad rap about being pietistic, is that if I don't put the virtue that I meditated on prayer into practice, St. Teresa of Avila says, I will leave prayer more harmed than when I entered. Why is that? Because I just kind of imagined myself there, but I'm not changed by it. And so I think like, oh my gosh, I have such this awesome prayer life. You know, I was just with Mary and Elizabeth there, and I saw the love between them. But if I never put that into practice, then I leave prayer just with a puffed-up head, thinking that now this is my virtue. Well, I have to do it. If I don't reduce that into action, then what ends up happening, and this is where it gets scary, is that we do not surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who would have known the scriptures more, you know, in the time? And who practiced them less? And so the knowledge of these things, even experience in intimacy of prayer, does not mean the living out of them. And if we don't live them out, if we don't put it into practice, what ends up happening is that the gospel claimed in the liturgy, read or prayed with, does no longer have the power to convert our actions. And if the gospel can't convert our actions, then what can and so, just to put a very heavy emphasis on, whenever we pray, it should lead into action. Think again, um, just to present to our minds the idea of pregnancy, that a woman becomes pregnant, not for the sake of being pregnant, but so that she can give birth. We pray, not just for the sake of prayer, but so that we can attune ourselves to the will of God. So we must carry out uh, what brings what virtue we've determined in prayer. You think about this right after that, we need to give thanks. We need to give thanks. That 
this, we need to acknowledge that all is grace. After we consider that virtue, we give thanks to God. And then the reality is, let's say, and I'll just say this as well. Like I said earlier, we shouldn't be like saturating our mind with useless media and such more than the time we do spiritual reading and pray if God is our final end and our last happiness. And so practical thing, like what all the scripture writers kind of say, especially about the laity, do 30 minutes of mental prayer a day. 30 minutes of mental prayer a day. Now the thing is, within that 30 minutes of mental prayer, what can happen is that you leave, and then stuff starts happening, you know, um, you start talking to your wife or your husband in the house, and then 10 minutes later, you forgot totally about what you prayed about. And so what Tanqueray recommends is, right before you leave that, moment of prayer, review. Review what you prayed about. And practically reduce it to a theme. If the fruit of that meditation was, I need to be more chaste in my emotions, just put that in your mind. God wants me to be more chaste. And so that whenever I'm exercising that memory, that proximate or that remote preparation outside of prayer, I'm just remembering that. Just remembering that from prayer. Um, Maybe the, the fruit is like generosity. And so you're just remembering maybe that one image of Mary and Elizabeth, and then after that, you're like, we're going to make sure to do that one generous act today. Because what ends up happening then is we have that, that prayer being practiced, and then that prayer being practiced, then that uh, virtue being practiced, and then, like St. Teresa of Avila says, we become virtuous. Virtue is that habitual disposition to do the good. And so then, as was said, through mental prayer, we are able to be virtuous rather than unable to be virtuous without mental prayer. But finally, that just before reviewing everything, um, that last, I'll give you two more methods. Um, this is it's a cheesy one. Uh, it's called, you pray like a pirate. Uh, A-R-R-R. It's an acronym. Um, acknowledge, relate, receive, respond. So I acknowledge, again, like those feelings or whatever that's come up when I bring up to the presence of the Lord. So, so maybe I'm, it's the same kind of thing. So I'm praying with Mary and Elizabeth, and I'm acknowledging what this stirs up in me. And then I'm relating that to God. God, I don't know why there's a sense of insecurity or a sense of envy here. And I relate that to him. And then I receive from him the truth of maybe that envy is because you feel like some, somebody's taking something from you or you're not good enough, but you are good in Christ. I receive the truth of where I've just related. And then I respond, saying, yes, Lord, I will find my identity and security in you. I will not be subject to envy. Acknowledge, relate, receive, respond. Super handy. Um, and then the second, and, and there's, again, a million different methods. I just want to give uh, four steps, and specifically within Lexio. And when I mean Lexio, I mean praying with the scriptures. Um, the first is read. So I'm going to read the text, and I'll read the text thoroughly. Maybe I'll read it twice. And when I'm reading the text, I understand that it is the living word of God. So that, like for instance, whenever my mom texts me, you know, because, you know, she's, she's my mom and she's live, right? Like when she texts me, like some of those words pop off. So it's like, uh, it could say, hey, call me. Or, hey, call me when you get a chance. Well, hey, call me is way different from, hey, call me when you get a chance. You know, like this one says, like, okay, there's a problem. This one, it's like, oh, okay, she just wants to chat. And so there's something about um, whenever we're reading the Word of God, like some words are going to stick out that are just going to resonate with us. And that's going to lead to the second point. Those words, that phrase, that idea, I meditate on it. So I read and I meditate. What is God trying to speak to me? I just put my mind on it. I meditate on it. I just stay there. For instance, the Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I shall want. There's nothing I shall want that sticks out to me. I feel like I want a lot of things. 
After that meditation, then will be the actual prayer. We'll call it prayer in the sense that saying, well, God, I want a lot of things. But I know that I should want a lot of things. Apparently, I, I, sh I should know the Lord is my shepherd and I should only want him. So why do I want these things? And this is where like the prayer comes in. This is where the actual conversation comes in. And I'm just bouncing off all these things against uh, the word of God, who's the truth. And then maybe I come to that and it's like, I want these things because I feel like I won't be provided for and that if I follow you, I'm going to fall flat on my face. To which God speaks the truth to that to say, no. You are more valuable than the sparrows. You are more valuable than the lilies of the field. And to that fourth point, then I simply contemplate or I rest. I let the truth of that meditation seep into my bones so that then I'm transformed and can carry that into action. So that again, we be virtuous. So in conclusion, to not do mental prayer is to be unable to grow in virtue, but to do mental prayer is the way in which we become virtuous or manly or Christ the man who is God. And to become like God, we do so by becoming like anything else in life. We love that thing. And so we love God, which means that we must love him with our whole heart, not simply for the 30 minutes that I spend in prayer, but in my moral life, in that remote preparation, by purging my um, interior senses and my exterior ones, by fasting, by purifying my imagination, my memory, by then choosing a selected reading in my passions as well by subjugating inordinate joys, and then that proximate preparation of uh, choosing a selected reading material and then mulling that over before I go to sleep at night in my mind. And then after that, that immediate preparation of when I go to pray, I'm placing myself in the presence of God and not just simply in front of my higher self. And after that, to exercise those virtues of faith, hope, and love, in which I place myself in the presence of the mystery at hand. I hope for those graces to come to me, and then I love that with a love of affection in which I desire for myself, and the love of effectiveness in which I put it into practice. So I thank you for your time, and we give you the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we trust all these things um, we and ponder them in our heart as your mother Mary did as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of the Annunciation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.